Recording in progress. What is up, my dude? What's up, man? I heard a few things. We needed to do an episode two. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's talk revolutions more and more. Let's do it. Uh, if you're just joining us, welcome to the Zanzizi Podcast with Red Dead 2023. It's July, which means we're celebrating revolutions. If you can see, I've got a shirt, uh, Sonic Youth. But you got to go to our YouTube to see that, youtube.com slash Zanzizi Podcast. Welcoming back for the third time now, my main dude, Mr. Adam Roberts back is, how are you doing? Not too bad, man. I'm uh, doing better. Just uh, winding down a long weekend with my best bud on his yeah. podcast. That's right. So you've been looking into this more, and I did that in the recent episode. I posted the links to the YouTube documentary series that I sent you, and it sounds like you took a gander into that this week following our episode did you learn anything interesting yeah there that was a that was a long episode but uh i i watched that along with i don't know maybe a dozen other historical videos on youtube right on read read some more but man you know going through all this information from you know the these eight years from what 1775 to 1783 there is so much information and like so much happened i mean it's not True. just like a revolutionary war i mean it was kind of a global war it was kind of a civil war it was kind of just kind of all over the place the iroquois nation kind of broke apart and there's so many different stories and it. it's just it's a lot of information to consume so hopefully i retain some of the key parts i think you did and well and if anything you'll have this to look back to to remember as we remember this country's beginnings starting with as we ended last time with the declaration of independence this shit was in paper ladies and gentlemen things were flying and we were happy we were so happy we were in our cups and a brief kind of explanation of how it started to go back even a little bit because they do this you do a part two you have a little recap so i'll say this the battles of lexington and concord were some of the leading military engagements of the american revolutionary war the battles were fought on april 19 1775 in middlesex county province of massachusetts bay within the towns of Lex lexington concord lincoln monotomy present-day Arlington and Cambridge. They marked the outbreak of armed conflict between the Kingdom of Great Britain and Patriot militias from America's 13 colonies. As we said before, the Colonials wanted a unified army and elected George Washington to Commander-in-Chief. As this opened a way for many to make their way into a new ranking structure, many men vied for power and glory, and one of them was one of the Revolutionary War's most prominent characters. Oh, Benedict Arnold. This guy. Decisive moments, 
moments did happen, especially after Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen's militia took Fort Ticonderoga. Ben Franklin farted around France, betting ladies, playing chess, but looking to get the French to help out the colonists. Yes, he fucked and philandered a lot, but he did make moves to do this, and he was a smart dude. He was able to acquire arms for the colonists to be sent by France. Finally, in the siege of Boston, Washington's forces drove British forces out in March 1776. In July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence formally signed in. We were free, bitches, out on our own, ready to make our own choices. No more Mother England. Time for a fresh start. But everything was in its infancy state. You know, as far as us being there, yes, we knew the roads, we knew the locals, we knew where to get that uh, the best deals on corn, and but when it came to government, we were like screaming infants. Like everything was so brand new, the navy, the army, and Adam, you kind of alluded to this last time, but you mentioned one of the leading killers during this era being uh, disease. Yeah. Was that? <laughs> That's right. And that, that goes on into other future wars, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think uh, I think every major war has had a fair share of disease and <clears throat> death from, you know, things outside of combat. It's uh, pretty it's hard, prominent. It's hard to keep morale when you got lumps on your dick, you know? Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I'd be pretty preoccupied with things going on in my pants. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in the fucking Pennsylvania, New York heat. Especially in the summer. So Yeah, and there's no medicine. Like, I mean, you put some vinegar on it, maybe, and wrap it up and hope you don't get gangrene. 18th century, folks. There were no Walgreens. So... At the end of 1776, British Commander-in-Chief William Howe responded by launching the New York and New Jersey campaign. Howe captured New York City in November, and Washington responded by clandestinely crossing the Delaware River and winning small but significant victories at Trenton and Princeton, which restored patriot confidence. But to put into context crossing the Delaware made famous by the picture of George W., it was not all that elegant. The dude was standing on a ramshackle boat made out of bad wood, and some dudes had towels for boots. They were cold and sick and tired, thankfully by ambushing the British-slash-Hessian forces. On Exmouth, though, they were met by little of a fight and mostly drunk dudes. And when they took those forces over, it's not necessarily known, but it's true. They literally were like, fuck this, it's Christmas, and Colonial Army dudes just stole their rum and proceeded to get ripped on it and transport their cachet of prisoners and spoils back drunk. So... When you think of that crossing the Delaware, just think of people just pissed on rum. You yeah, it. I don't think it was frowned upon. I mean, I, I was uh, watching something uh, before on YouTube about how the British commanders would uh, prep their prep the regulars uh, prior to going into battle with just like giving them rations of rum to get them loosened up for uh, you know cannonball fire, I suppose. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, especially if you're gonna go down hard. Might as well do it with your fucking, your senses dulled a little, you know what I mean? I completely, I completely get it. 
Yeah, better to have a bottle of Captain Morgan in your hand. I will say this: uh, uh, Zanzizi does not endorse you drinking on duty, though. Nor when fighting in war. No. Yes. <laughs> um. So to give you guys kind of a context as well. Meanwhile, most British generals held comfy positions in Philadelphia and wherever they had planted roots, usually taking on a mistress or two, getting fat, fat on the ample supplies. John Burgoyne or Gentleman Johnny was one of those men and um, British general, one of those men, a guy who returned to the colonies witnessing the British loss at Boston, of which he made a bet. There was a guy... Uh, from Parliament named Charles Fox, who he made a bet with, staking his career on that the war would be done by Christmas. After This is after the Delaware. Fox replied to this, uh, be not over sanguine, I believe you will return a prisoner. So when your friends make a bet against you, you may need to rethink your bet. His plan was uh, to take the Hudson River. In the 18th century, there are no bridges over water. You have to kind of consider that when moving, especially in a big army. If you control those points, you can control access or of transfer of troops from one side to the other. General Howe, though, uh, isn't thinking like Burgoyne, and this is the other main British general at the time. He is floating around in his boat, and he just wants to take Philadelphia back to the British fully. Now, I mentioned that the British had comfy positions. You got to understand, this is one of those wars where, like, more often than not, you saw the enemy in, we'll say, polite society. More, more. It was more of an awkward bump into kind of situation than we probably will ever see in our lifetime, unless we have what Civil War II, which shouldn't and wouldn't happen. But they weren't. It it was, and in the, and the British really championed this. There was more of a dignification when it came to battle, and the way that you handled war. I mean, they wouldn't even fire on, we'll say, leading army generals from the opposite side unless in ba- actual battle. So if you're if you're, say literally out at a ball or at the local pub and you see somebody in the opposite team's uniform, you just kind of keep it going. You don't fuck around and just, you know, do some guerrilla tactics or some sort of terrorism, which future episode, there's a little bit of that when we lead into the 20th century. Um, so go ahead. The, the warfare back then was very gentlemanly, uh, reading about some of these surrenders uh, you know most of the battles one side surrendered to the other but uh, you know these guys would have all this uh, you know ceremony you know exchanging of swords the the generals whoever was in charge uh, of the you know the armies they would have dinner together right like yeah it was like very formal um i mean you're, they're killing each other and then they're like yeah sir yeah you lost <laughs> yeah, and there to join me for some steak and potatoes. Yeah, right. <laughs> totally. And like and and it wasn't it was not uncommon for them to sit and like you know dine and converse like completely and openly. I mean, a lot of the tactics that we learned from say someone like Napoleon or um the incredibly I would say the 
I'm trying to think of it. Duke Wellington was uh, was on the English side who fought against Napoleon. His tactics were amazing too. And you would find these out and study these things either through enemy studying their movements and, and, and having full-on conversations with them. In a way, this time, there was a real honor and, and uh, dignity and truth to war. But continuing on with General Howe and General Burgoyne, do you have anything you want to add about these two characters? Yeah, I think um, what Burgoyne went up to Saratoga, right? Yep. 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 And then Howe stayed back in New York City. Right. Burgoyne. And then Clinton Howe, took over for Howe afterward, right? Yep, yep. And yeah. we'll get to that more as we as we keep. Howe went back to England after he got done. Yes. He yeah. he ate a shit sandwich and went right back home. Yeah. Um so he as I said, uh Howe wasn't thinking like Burgoyne. He wants to take Philadelphia back, fully back to the to the British. The other wants the Hudson, and this is going to lead to a lot of final moves that I don't think either men ultimately wanted because of this, okay? 13,000 soldiers on ships just fucking float around New York. Howe was obsessed with Philly. The center of the 13 colonies, dude just literally sat on his yacht with a boner for it, staring at a map, pointing at it. Um, abandoning, like fully abandoning his other... General Burgoyne's idea. He changed the course of the war because of honestly ego. If I have to, you know, make that make that assumption, I would say it was ego ultimately. And honestly, Washington was just marching up and down the river too. Like this is a really weird time for Washington, 1776. I mean, granted, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of great things going on in um in the country as far as the declaration and we started pretty good that spring but this is like this winter into 1777 is is the make or break is the why you are on a dollar bill kind of time period you got to man up and fucking do it so let's sidetrack for a minute uh, let's talk about correspondence at this time, I, which I think is a big deal because nowadays I can literally, like I was literally at the grocery store buying this fine LaCroix that I'm going to probably slam the entirety of this case while we do this episode. And Adam texted me instant, instant. And I was, he was like, Hey, my kid's down. I can go. And we started doing the show. It's so amazing to me how quickly things move now. Put this into context of this time. It would take months to get letters. Not only that, but like when we said, fuck this declaration of independence is a go and kind of offered the olive branch to England, they didn't retaliate or say like, go to war with us until the winter of 1776 fully, like fully commit to bringing us down and taking us to task for being silly Americans with our declarations and shit like that. Like they, things did not turn around quick. And Franklin, like, there's a reason he was such a, you know, chess playing, farting, walking around, smooching on French maids so much. I mean, he didn't get letters all the time. And he was realistically, he was waiting for some 
good fucking news or something he could spin because dude was a spin master as well. So you get a you get a letter most times the enemy the enemy or friends and family were already several times over past the urgency of what their letters would say. So if you get a letter and it says, um, I think we're about a week away from no supplies, you gotta imagine everybody's starving and or dead by the time you get that letter. And what was a what was a what was it six weeks or something to send a letter yep. across the Atlantic? Yep. <clears throat> so yeah, that's uh, and you had yeah, to that's count, amazing to me too. You had to count also, and we'll get to this more and we'll, a future episode. We have to cover Benjamin Franklin like beginning to death because he is so fascinating. But like he had to play it so. He had to keep this calculated silence during this time, really, because his secretary was a spy. Any letter he got was rerouted. Any letter he sent was rerouted and read fully. So you have to wonder, how does one play chess so far down the moves like he did to, you know, get one over? Um, Granted... And, and historians don't necessarily talk about this that much. Franklin was seen as like Elon Musk is today in France. Like to, we'll 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 try to make this as anti-political as possible, but as a genius, we'll just say, like in his place in in France, they were like this motherfucker. He created electricity. Oh, zap my cheese, melted to my bread. Like he seemed like, uh, literally like an American rock star. And there's more rock stars to come, but just to give you an idea of what France was like at the time. Now, as I said, um, Washington. Washington's woes with his army, he needed to, they really needed to get his army whipped into shape. As I said before in the Napoleon episode, an army is only as fast as its slowest soldier. And sadly, these dudes were slow, even though the idea of the war had a lot of purpose to them. The biggest thing is that these dudes' enlistments would run out. And on top of that, troops weren't paid for months. Can you imagine that? Like, honestly, today, if we didn't pay our military servicemen. Like, they they got IOUs m- monthly. Yeah, and when they did get paid, it was useless paper money, which had no value back then. Again, infant screaming in its crib government. Like... And this this is this is, has to do with the taxation part, portion of it, right? The Continental right. Congress didn't have the authority to levy taxes yet, so they had no money to pay these guys. Right. Supplies were all based on the local economy. And so if you get bogged down in one area, you're literally going to somebody who's staking his claim on his business being able to sell his wares and you're literally like, hey, we're the new army. Can we get some pigs? And he's like, fuck you, pay me. And they're like, raise up their muffles, muffles, raise up their the muzzles of their gun, and they're like, we're going to take this piggy to go. And he's like, shit, guys. All right, don't shoot me. I got 18 kids. So, um, as I said, Washington's in a pickle. He's got to, re- he's really got to rely on 
commitment that these guys would have to him as their leader and their drive to see the promises of a new country, a new establishment thrive and survive. I mean, you can't deny the people who put their lives on the line. And this time they had to, they had to beg them to stay on the idea of basic principles you know many officers though they, I'm, they had to go home to provide for their families without money to send back they had to help or then let their kids starve um, but I think to the commitment of Washington and really to his honor as a man he spent most of his time in the evening sending letters to Congress for more money the Colonial Congress more money and supplies to which he normally had to plead for, which is why he'd held Benedict Arnold or any anyone in such high regard who could get supplies for them in other ways, like when they took Fort Ticonderoga. I mean, that was just a huge deal. And like I said, Franklin had sent French with supplies and arms, and this is where we're going to get into battle time, August 22nd, 1777 in Hartsville, Pennsylvania. Howe's fleet enters Chesapeake Bay, headed for the rebel capital. Oop. Spooky. Um, Howe's fleet enters Chesapeake Bay. Uh-oh. And we're on a march basically towards each other, ending up in Brandywine Creek. Sounds like a retreat for middle-aged alcoholics on their second marriage. 25,000 soldiers clashed here in Brandywine. So September 11th, 1777, the battle starts. Now, just before this, the French weapons had arrived. Huzzah! Huzzah! Ben Franklin's exploits in France pay off. Washington takes note. Problem is, they were broken. Not good. <laughs> Which sucks. And to make things worse, the British sadly had improved guns. Lighter, longer range, and deadly accurate. Which fucking sucks. So professional soldiers... Um, Basically, one of the guys that was in charge at the time had just picked up on this technology. And technology, it was kind of word of mouth at the time. Again, six weeks for a letter. Or you would get some sort of news or somebody would rant and rave about it in the town square. Things did not move quick. I'm trying to double hit that point. And also, in life, things don't move quick. You have to really have hope, and these guys did. The, the British inevitably in this conflict pulled a bit of a Long Island maneuver, if that, came, that makes any sense, and came up from behind. They had done this before. A thousand soldiers are killed, and George Washington does what he does best and retreats, and Philadelphia is taken by the Brits. How, General... British commander Howe has succeeded. Unfortunately, though, these guys, Washington, put up a decent enough fight because, like I said, he could retreat at the right time, and they did take some casualties. So, 
I think historically this is seen as a big loss, but I think more important it is to note that they were able to move relatively quickly given, like we said, you're moving at the slowest soldier's pace and these guys got broken French guns that they're just trying to throw at them or something like that. They got out of there. And six weeks later, news of this hits American ambassador Ben Franklin's desk in France, and he decides to spin this news that Howe, in fact, hasn't taken Philly. Philly has taken Howe. Remember, Ben knew how to spin things and make it appear to the French that the American cause is a good one. It was fiction at the time, but Ben made it a reality. I think what this says is that sometimes the only course of action when a cause is right is to play a little dirty, especially in France when you're an American. He's getting a future episode, like I said before. So British General John Burgoyne, we mentioned him too. He is out with his Indian buddies. He's on land. He's been around New York. He wanted their abilities in knowing the land to help the British infiltrate the northern armies. The Indians weren't interested in monarchies. They played it for how he was going to play for them, which side is our which side is going to be our best friend and who's our biggest threat. Each Indian nation had to decide and most overwhelmingly sided with the British. That's the sad truth, ladies and gentlemen. Isn't that make it kind of sting looking back? Adam? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm from, you know, basically the center of the Iroquois Confederacy. You know, I live in Madison County, New York. Um, I'm five minutes from, but actually, all of all of the land that I live on is all Oneida territory. Um, Oneida County is just, you know, five miles to the east of me. Um, you've been to the casino here, the Turning Stone Casino. It's all Oneida owned. Um, and for a large part, actually, matter of fact, the Oneidas were one of only two of the Iroquois nations that sided with the U.S. Interesting. In the in the Revolutionary War. In the, uh, I believe, the Tuscarora. You know what would be, be fascinating <laughs> to cover is casinos. Like how those became like Indian owned <clears throat> like what the whole thing is it might be a two sentence blurb that I just read and it's like oh boo, boo, boo. we just decided they could own casinos or whatever but like that seems like kind of a drawn out process and those things are just making money constantly yeah I mean I, I don't know the history behind the casinos on reservations and Indian-owned casinos, but I'm sure it, I mean, it has to do with revenue and being able to provide for their, you know, their people, their tribes. I love because the movie Casino. It's a great movie. Robert De Niro. <laughs> Sharon Stone. Really long time. It's yeah. Good, good. Good shit. Scorsese's getting an episode too. So, British General John Burgoyne sits down and has a nice palaver with the Indians. Each Indian nation had to decide who to side with, and these guys are currently siding with the British. Burgoyne ended up smoking the peace pipe with the Indians, asking them, basically, go nuts. Scalp the shit out of the Americans. And unfortunately, they took that a little too crazy, and two braves captured a woman in Vermont named Jane McRae, and she was killed. 
Some say it could have been militiamen shooting at them that got her killed, but there was no Ben Franklin to spin this story. It shot through the colonies and became huge anti-Indian propaganda, which is not something the British need. Uh when they're basically trying to ally with them. And General Burgoyne is the one that's actually held her accountable. When the Indians brought her scalp back to him, he shit his red coat pantaloons. It was not what he wanted. His reaction was pitiful to the public. I mean, if unless you're literally, like, scalping them back, like, the public is bloodthirsty. And this time for sure is bloodthirsty you know i can't imagine what the casualties were like in small communities but losing even one person when you know everybody sucks balls i mean everybody's lost somebody dear near and dear to their heart we lost somebody this year that we loved more than anything and i can't imagine people are going to be especially when it's a white woman jesus christ i mean they're going to go fucking crazy. And on the other side, and we're talking about Burgoyne at this time with the Indians, for General Horatio Gates of the colonists, a supposed bastard son who found glory to take on against his former home, this was a welcome addition. He also sought to become a commander-in-chief or even possibly king because you got to remember, John Adams actually said, hey, GW, I think uh, we're going to make you Our Majesty, the King of America. And George Washington was like, no, sir, this is not a monarchy. But then again, John Adams was the nerd. So we're we're getting into Horatio Gates. Do you have anything you want to say about this this feller? Yeah, I I read a little bit about him. I know he was. Uh, I know we're we're right at the beginning, but wasn't he the uh, the guy who ran off? Yes. After uh, yeah, he he retreated and it just so, uh, ruined his entire reputation. Like he he uh, yeah, and that's the big that I'm glad you mentioned that. So keep in mind as we as we dive into this fella. Okay, he is like. Benedict Arnold, but without the spit and polish, without the, I'm not saying he was like, you know, Mr. Third Class Petty Officer Herrig over here who ironed his uniform with a rock, per se. He looked the part, but he was a wimp. Yeah, Washington didn't like him at all, right? He nope. he thought he was a big goober. Yeah. Yeah, and if yeah, Washington yeah. thought you were a goober, you were no good. Because Washington <laughs> would listen to anybody, you know? Like, yeah. that to me says a lot. Like, if you listen to listen to everybody's perspective, that's a, that's a leader. Anyway, so, yes, you're right. He was a goober. General Goober Horatio Gates of the colonists. Um, so, when this happened, it gave him some fuel especially for the colonists, any bad publicity for the Brits was like welcome. So Gates added fuel by writing an open letter to Burgoyne and said, he fucking sucks. He's a piece of shit. And in the seven years war, Burgoyne and Gates were actually homies, like straight up boys. But now he's like, fuck you and this horse shit. I'm the golden boy. I'm going to order my army into a place. He knows where you're going to have to pass me at bitch. Cause 
Again, no bridges. He decided to set up perimeter in a town called Saratoga. You know a little bit about Saratoga, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, no, like I was saying a minute ago, like I, I there's a lot of Revolutionary War history in New York State. I know. Like, you know, like I was mentioned, because I live really close to the Oneidas, but, you know, the Onondagas, Syracuse is in Onondaga County. Um, <clears throat> Saratoga, I mean, that's a little ways out from where I live, but right. Fort, Fort Stanwix is in Rome, New York. Um, How far are 20- you from Valley Forge? That's like Daw, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah, that's way away from me. Okay. Like, um, my neck of the woods is like Fort Stanwix is probably closest. That's in Rome. Okay. Uh, the Battle of Ariscany, um, Herkimer, that's Oneida County. That's probably like a half an hour to the east of me. Okay. So a lot, Saratoga's out north of Albany. So that's that's a couple hour drive. But going back to what you're saying about how slow things move, I mean. God, can you imagine marching across the state of, you know, any state, but like New York, 200 miles. You know, it, would, from- it would suck ass. And, and like you said, this is the summertime. You're not getting off, fellas, ladies. Yeah, it gets hot. It Have gets you ever seen hot. The, uh, the the Woodstock uh, documentary not out on Netflix right now? About 99? Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's in Rome, New York. That's where Fort Stanworks is, right? Is it? But... Uh, Weather-wise, that was 100-plus degrees humidity. I couldn't imagine being in all that wool, you know, just have all sorts of belts and shit hanging off of you. You got to be sweating your nuts off. That sucks. Your balls are making some serious cheddar. It's not good. So, (laughs) September 19th, 1777, numbers of the military have swelled because of General Burgoyne's bullshit. Meanwhile, Burgoyne is still waiting on General Howe. Again, he doesn't realize dude went up to Hudson. And the nerd's in Philly, so he's like, what the fuck? And basically, while these men, Burgoyne's men, are marching through the woods, they see a sign posted on a tree that says, Thus far shall go and no further, the rebels wrote. Basically saying to the Brits, y'all better back the fuck off. So it was just south of Saratoga at Freeman's Farm where they saw this. And that's when Daniel Morgan enters. Now this is a General Washington's boy, a Virginia officer, and he is similar to a, a, to um, the militias that we've discussed in the past that's led by a, just an invigorated leader. This guy, he created a few tactics inspired by the Indians by firing at enemies in cover, which again, like we said, it was all gentlemanly walking a line. <laughs> you, sir, take a shot first. And, you know, like it was very dual-esque. In the first assault, all but one British officer from this flank led by Daniel Morgan is killed. Damn. The British officers suffered 6,000 casualties at Saratoga. Many bloody skirmishes happen, and even with that, the Americans fall back, and the Brits get the idea, we don't give up without a fight. And because of this, and the bad, you know, wind that Burgoyne had caused, the army starts to swell 
Horatio Gates feels it, so too can another fellow general, Benedict Arnold, who arrives at Saratoga with ambitions to fuck shit up and make a name for himself. After the BS that was take the, fa- the taking of Fort Ticonderoga and Ethan Allen taking the glory, he's been in the war since the outset and he's going to put his name at the top. The two armies wait two miles from each other, waiting on orders. Now, this is always super interesting to me. The idea of you can see the you can see like the battlements from a distance, you know. Can you imagine being on either side and seeing that? How that would be? Like, do you just crack a fart in the air and hope it drifts over there so they can be like, oh no, they smell like shit over there. This is gonna suck when we have to fight. Yeah, dude, I gotta imagine that it must have been pretty nerve wracking. Uh, you know, open field battles stuff like that you know i always get a kick out of like the old you know like braveheart and stuff where they all you know swords and shit like that and mm-hmm. just rush into battle like all those medieval battles um god you had to like i mean i'm not saying the level of bravery and courage it takes now to like be in combat it's any different than it was two centuries ago right but it was much more personal i guess is what i'm trying to say for you know, sure when and, you're and especially then you only had one shot right and so you would line up and you would do volleys and right like if you're in the first line there's a high probability you're gonna take a fucking musket ball right to your dome dude it sucks mm-hmm. thinking about that like you got to be nervous as shit i know i'd probably be shit in my pants right and to it, be to be on a front line like that that's crazy yeah <laughs> and and take a turn and then you get to shoot they get to shoot, <laughs> dude. What the? It's like that's. It's just I can't even wrap my head around how uh, how fucking insane that would be. Yeah, no, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, and I know at least during the Civil War, people would come out and and have like a picnic and watch the battles. So you know, just much like when we would have open executions, say in Europe. There, there was usually a, some sort of an audience, and we'll get to that too as these battles go on, and the role that specifically that civilians and women played during this time. So, as the two armies are waiting to square off around Saratoga at Continental Headquarters in Saratoga Gates, Arnold's army, uh, I'm sorry, at Continental Headquarters in Saratoga, Horatio Gates and Arnold, Benedict Arnold, who's their army, has swelled to twice the size of Burgoyne's. And what ends up happening here is very interesting to me. The two decide to sit down to dinner over Oxheart, and Arnold says, let's lead an offensive act. Let's just, we've got the numbers. I'm, I'm itching to get a shot at some of these fucking redcoats. Let's go hit them up. But Gates wants them to come to him, Horatio. Fact is, Gates thought Arnold was arrogant. Arnold called Gates <laughs> Granny Gates, which, I mean, you don't want to be called somebody's grandma or be, like, put down like that. And eventually Arnold took it too far over their fucking heart dinner and gates has to remind arnold he's the ranking officer to which arnold and is not happy i mean this dude is straight up fuming and over the dinner he tells him to stay in his quarters on the edge of the battlefield and sulk like the fucking goth 
baby he is. This dinner decisively led to Arnold defying his commanding officer's orders. So, with Burgoyne's supplies dwindling on October 7th, 1777, he sends 1,500 to Bemis Heights, and Gates sends 2,400 to meet them. It is the final engagement of the Battle of Saratoga. Benedict Arnold employed snipers at the time up in trees using camouflage like Indians. The Brits did not see that coming. Through the smoke of battle, Arnold sees a British officer named Simon Fraser rallying his troops, and with this, he orders his men to target him. And with that move, of which there had always been a gentleman agreement to not fire an officer, he uh, he pulls an American move, I guess. Uh, fuck that. It's just, this is a war, and we mean to win it. They take him down in three shots. This sends the soldiers that are rallying around Fraser into a panic, losing their commander. And they retaliate by firing on Arnold, and Benedict is hit in the leg. When they ask, because at this time his horse had fallen over on him as well, when they ask if he'd been shot, he replies, it's in my leg, but I wished it was my heart. And in a rather poignant way, a historian on the documentary linked to this episode and our previous episode said, quote, I wish it was his heart too. If he had died, he would have been the great victor of the Revolutionary War. It's very true. In the end, the British were beat handily here. That's the Battle of Saratoga. Woo! That's it. That's it. And then the war was done. Everybody went home. We made pies. Uh, no, there's a lot more. So, as kind of an ending to this this particular battle, the two generals met. John Burgoyne and Horatio Gates. And with this, Burgoyne surrenders his with 6,000 forces to him. Burgoyne loses his bet and his military career because of this. And meanwhile, General Howe is in Philadelphia thinking everyone should be celebrating. Like, I took the capital. What is going on? I'm here. Brits are here. What's going on? Six weeks later? There should be a lot. Oh, shit. This is not a good letter. Everything is fucked. He fucked up, and I fucked up. We all fucked up. The team's fucked over. And now he's got to go home to England, face the music. He resigns, learning a painful lesson in ego, I would assume. So, after Saratoga and in his second huge slight... By the way, General Horatio Gates takes all the credit from Benedict Arnold. Once again, Benedict, even with his great sniper idea and almost getting killed, I mean, he's at this point, he's irreversibly sending him into a, a mental rage. He's He calls him Granny Gates, so you know, you know he had that one dig in there. But I, I don't know. Do you, do you sympathize any with this character at all? Going through this with Benedict Arnold, yeah, yeah, uh, not really. I mean, he did some great things. I think he was, uh, you know, well respected, uh, especially by Washington. Um, I think Washington had a good relationship with him and, and and wanted him, you know, to to 
to assist them in the in the war effort. But at the end of the day, he, he just turned his back on his country. It's, it's all he did. I mean, yeah, he he didn't get all the glory and he didn't get all the women and all the you know spoils of war. But he 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 yeah, he's a little life. Totally. Yeah, I don't have any sympathy for him. No, I agree. I it's it's more of like the turns you ta- you either live long enough to s- you either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain and he did. Yeah. Now entering Peggy Shipman. She was something. This fucking bitch. <laughs> There's a great drunk history, and Winona Ryder plays Peggy Shipman. It's pretty fucking fantastic if you can find it. Um, She was a young, young thing, 18 years old, but a part of the socialites at the time after Saratoga. GW knew, Mr. Washington knew, that Benedict had played a role, and he even though he was passed up from one of the high-ranking military officer positions, he was appointed military governor. And uh, this was kind of a change-up because these things, I mean, they had balls every Thursday. Most of the time it was like, I don't know which pub to drink at. I think I've drank at them all. I haven't Yelp reviewed every single fucking colonial pub. Like, that was the big quagmire of somebody who, say, had this type of a comfy position. But while being a part of that social network that was 18th century, like, colonial world, this is when he meets this beautiful woman, and she's 18... She's well-spoken. She is supposedly neutral in the conflict, but kept company with British a British soldier, Major John Andre. They had a bit of a friendship, and most people say that it was more than that. But having a relationship with him obviously kept the ladies murmuring and created even more drama in the inner court of socialites in the colonies while the battles were raging. France provided the Continental Armour army with informal economic and military support from the beginning of the war. After Saratoga, the two countries signed a commercial agreement and a treaty of alliance in February of 1778. In 1779, Spain also allied with France against Britain in the Treaty of Aruanes. Though Spain did not formally ally with the Americans, access to ports in Spanish Louisiana allowed American patriots to patriots to import arms and supplies while the Spanish Gulf Coast campaign deprived the British Royal Navy of key bases in the American South. Ultimate betrayal came during this time, though, as I said, this post-Saratoga era with Benedict Arnold as the uh, military governor. Uh, when allied with the British Army, he gave up strategic moves to Major John Andre in the form of letters supposedly written to Peggy Shipman. This sucked, and he really shouldn't have done this given that he was a tried-and-true patriot, but his ego got in the way along with a beautiful woman who was a bit of a CNX Tuesday, if you get my meaning. 
But here's why I say he was more in the gray area than just a typical history villain. Dude had the means and drive to be a patriot, but turned coat in the end. And that's my little side tangent with him. Saratoga served as a thing to sign, uh, as, a, as a big thing, though, because when this happened, Franklin finally had what he needed to really push the agenda with the French. King Louis XVI says, Hey, you're a sharp man, Franklin, and Saratoga gives me confidence to join your war efforts. This is now effectively a world fucking war. It was like the second or third world war I've read about pre-World War I. But the winter of 1777 for Washington sucks balls. Gates, Horatio says he should be in charge. There's still a lot of control from British armies. So on December 17, 1777, in White Marsh, Pennsylvania, Horatio Gates makes his move to be commander-in-chief. Washington looks like second place to the Continental Congress. His army at Brandywine had retreated into New Jersey, and he loses a 1,000 wounded and dead colonial soldiers just in this bitter cold. The Rebel Congress is in exile in York, Pennsylvania. This rogue Congress are taking major shits on Washington, so they're not talking good about him because Horatio looks like the, the clear winner. Um, he says that historians won't talk well on us if we don't win soon. We will be at a loss. Do you know who said that? I said he says, but do you know who says historians won't talk well on us if we don't win soon? We will be at a loss. This is according to somebody who's part of this continental rogue Congress militia, whatever, colonial, stinky. I do. I, I have no idea. It was Samuel Adams. Fucking go make some beer, you bitch. Just saying. I got some Sam Adams in the fridge. <laughs> He, he he did well for himself. He was part of the Sons of Liberty. I give full cred to Sam Adams. There were a lot of great... Th th he added a lot to the war. We wouldn't be here... He wouldn't have been a part of it if he wasn't a great speaker and leader. So, Congress... You know, who, you know who made out well? Sam, Sam Adams-wise? Who? That... Uh, what the hell's the guy's name? Pope? The guy who owns Sam Adams <laughs> Company? Yeah. That guy's like... That guy's like a billionaire. Of course. Beer makes so much goddamn money. He made out well. Good for him and Sam Adams. Yeah. Here's to the <laughs> corporate shithead people that make billions. So Congress decides to appoint Horatio Gates as the leader of the war. Some random position they made up like most people in power. So George Washington takes the winner to rebuild his army, and this is key. It will be a big move at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And you've probably heard of Valley Forge before. I think most people have. It's uh, This camp is easily defensible with lakes and creeks on either side. Washington decides to get focused. I mean, this is if there was a time during this, if you were to take a movie and make it out of part one and two that we've done so far on this, this would be the montage sequence. George Washington takes care to put in strict rules for soldier to use 
proper privies because at the same time he's like dude wipe your fucking furry colonial ass when you take diarrhea shits you fucks and he enacts his venereal disease penalty of ten dollars for officers and four dollars for soldiers so don't sleep with fucking loose laura over around the corner there she's got stuff he focuses on disease and the havoc they cause dudes gotta wipe when they shit and keep their ding-dongs in their pantaloons so in philadelphia it's stark contrast as i said before people are just walking around the british can relax even though they've lost this big war they have the trouble of picking where they're going to drink they have social gatherings high society mingles with officers every thursday at a ball while the dudes at valley forge are literally fighting zero degree temperatures and literally still have boots made out of towels so at night they play cards letters again come six weeks delayed or it's it's different in the colonies things move a little bit quicker so maybe we'll say two weeks depends if if you got us if you got a little honey and she's way 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 down south we'll say like south carolina and you're up in new york it's gonna take a little while just saying how many letters do you think got lost in the mail that's a great question 70s I mean, if you're sending a letter, let's say you're sending a letter all the way up the coast. Mm-hmm. I mean, several weeks. What's the you know? Well, what was the delivery rate? It would take then? it would take some math. It would probably have to deal with like how fast a horse can move at top speed and like average speed versus square miles versus how good was the sorting. I mean, are your all your mailmen drunk? Because then you're gonna lose. <laughs> You're going to lose like 30% of your mail because he's using it to wipe his ass or fucking loogies. And then who knows? It was probably a guy, like a gigantic quandary of a post office at the time. I know Ben Franklin was the first postmaster, but like specifically all of the things that we take for granted now when it comes to mail, none of that was there. There was none of that. I guarantee you. That's why a stamp act would probably piss people off too, because they're like, this motherfucking note isn't even a get to grandma. So why the fuck am I paying tax on something that's fucking useless? They'd lose their mind at a cost of a stamp nowadays. I, yeah. I just heard it's going up again, like 80 cents or 70 cents. Yeah. What is it? I don't know. What the fuck? I don't pay attention to that shit. I mean, mostly I, I see it. I hear about it. And then I get told not to walk on somebody's grass. You tell a fucking colonial mailman that, you might get a fucking buckshot in your nose. Just be nice. Be nice. That's the end of the day. Go enjoy your socialite ball. Shut the fuck up. So, people are having fun in Philly. Meanwhile, Valley Forge sucks ass. As the winter grinds on supplies become a huge issue supplying the continental army was super hard and only organized locally so a lot of times they got nothing and had to make fire cakes which is just goop i mean they explained it in um one of the docs i watched and it's like bread and like salt water it's just gross you might as well just cook your shoe well i well i heard that they that was one of the things they did do was uh it said in one of the documentaries i watched i don't know if you watched all the same shit that i did but they 
said that they would roast their boots over an open fire because it was made out of leather and they would just eat it or like sticks, branches. They'd eat the bark. Just starving, freezing and starving to death, eating their boots. <laughs> this sucks ass so bad. And here's another sobering fact. No MREs in the, in the 1780s, 1770s. This, and we're going to take a break after this, but Valley Forge sucked ass so bad. This is shitty as fuck. 2,500 soldiers died that winter from typhus and disease. Jesus. That yeah. sucks ass. Like, straight on the mouth of a fucking rhino with diarrhea sucks ass. More than in the entire war died just that winter. Like, yeah. from the con- for the Continental Army. And we see how serious this winter can be. Be nice to your northern folk. Life's hard out here with the clap and the cold. I mean, it's true. Thousands of others are starving and pissed off, too. I mean, people aren't... People aren't sending things to help out the war effort. They don't know. I mean, you ever talk to like one of those neighbors who's just so fucking like, like you'll tell them. It's like when you meet somebody nowadays and you're like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty big fan of Star Wars. And they're like, I've never heard of a Star Wars. And you're like, who the fuck are you? I mean, Times that times like a hundred. There were probably people that were like, we're at war. I didn't know that. I'd just been, you know, married to old Bessie here and I got two pigs. One of them, one of them pees kind of funny. Do you know what that means? Like literally they're caught up in their own world. They have no fucking fathomable idea. Meanwhile, just trying to fucking get things figured out the winter is just a massive issue and supplies are not coming washington is writing constantly to the states for more food and clothing yelling at congress to help with supply offices and here's another sobering fact as i said uh these letters are basically not being answered because they don't know what to do enter Baron von Steuben, or Frederick William Henrik Augustus Ferdinand, if you're nasty. Gay Prussian has joined the rank and file, folks, and he's going to whip these dudes into shape. GW wants to make sure he can still do it, though, and when Baron von Steuben arrives, he comes with an honorary knighthood from Prussia. He said he's a very awarded general, but in fact is only captain level and has been turned down by France, Spain, and German armies because he has been rumored to take on adolescent boys as preferred company. Not good, Van Steuben. But this time, we need all the help we can get. And uh, George puts Van, Von Steuben in charge of whipping his soldiers into shape. He starts by working on a small detachment unit that will train everyone else. He could distill European drill tactics into the American soldier, and that was his idea. He did have somebody who interpreted him, because a lot of this was... He was speaking in Prussian, and these guys were just like, What the fuck did he say? Did you hear him, Charlie? This fucking guy. Did he just say something about my mother? Nobody talks about your mother. Shut up. Like, you would be confused. But he had somebody that could basically interpret, which helped. Um... He starts by working on this small detachment that will basically, in essence, train everyone else. And this is in this 
fateful winter at Valley Forge. He couldn't speak English, as I said, and it was rough for them to understand, but they were able to become soldiers by really learning how to use bayonets, loading rifles, and basically good old-fashioned military professionalism, that get-out-of-bed at the right time, clean your teeth, wipe your ass right, the privies that Washington had set up, the roads, the the chain of command, the military orders, all that stuff plays a part in this type of stuff and stuff that we probably shook off and said, this is some fucking dumb bullshit. It all has meaning. And there's a reason, I mean, much of what we learned in the modern military is learned in moving together as one. The foundation of the military's first training manual is actually based on what became the tactics used at this training that von Steuben performed. And it was put into a manual that the military would use for hundreds of years, you know? So it pays. I mean, do you remember how much we marched in boot camp to like get the formation down? Oh yeah. Like, remember when we first got to boot camp and we were all just a bunch of idiots just off the bus and they were trying to teach us the basics of marching together? Dude, by the end of boot camp, I literally had holes in my heels, Mm -hmm. like through my boots, through my socks. I had holes. We marched, what, I don't know, 12, 15 miles a day, every single day. And then we'd go march in the drill hall and practice just yeah it's all the attention to detail that we were like you said like what the fuck are we doing all this stuff for right we have to have our bed sheets at 45 degree angles right like what are we doing but 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 yeah it goes into everything you know training wise just being having the discipline to you know fight a war i've said this before and i'll say it again 85 percent to maybe 90 percent of it is just showing up on time Brush your teeth because nobody wants to smell your breath smelling like dog shit. Be respectful to the chain of command because when you're in that position later on in life, you're going to expect it. You're going to want that, you know, and it takes a lot more stress when you move up. There's a reason for it. There's a reason that when you have to make the calls, even though when you're a young startup, that's what you want to do. You don't know anything. And Washington knew, being the kind of guy that he was, that he had to whip these guys into shape. And luckily, Von Steuben showed up when he did. Valley Forge is essential in the history of the military, from my position, and probably from any historian's position. A hard-ass winner meets someone yelling at you in the cold, not knowing what the fuck is going on, but moving together as a unit. Like Adam brought up, it's oddly familiar to me, even with my small time in. Um, When spring comes, the boys are ready. For young General Nathaniel Green, he is a successful merchant from a family that loathes war. He's ambitious and loyal and becomes the youngest brigadier general in the service. He, at 33, is part of Washington's closest confidants. As a merchant, he says, our situation is fucked. I'm going into the Virginia countryside to find supplies. So this is, if anybody wants a leadership point or, let's say, wisdom, if you want something done, do it. That's what he's saying right here in this moment in time. Nathaniel Green is like, everybody's bitching, but no one's doing anything. I'm just going to do something. So 
as I mentioned before, the, the locals didn't want to give up on what little they had, which is understandable. But in this moment, things were like, obviously, when I said 2,500 of them died, it, it was desperate. And folks, they took people's livestock sometimes and had to just give them IOUs, which is paper and bullshit. But it was a promise of payment one day. That's a lot of people, though. You got to imagine these armies weren't enormous. No, you know? no, they, no. I think the peak British troops were like almost 30,000 or just under. Yep. It, you know, so if you have, you know, 2,500 people just like die in a matter of months, I mean, that's a, that's a, I mean, our, our forces were smaller than the Brits. I, I don't know how many, how many people total were at Valley Forge, do you know? 10,000 or something? 13. Yeah. I want to say. So, so you're talking maybe like, you know, a, a fifth of mm-hmm. the people, every fifth person just dies. That's a lot of people to wipe out and, you know, have to still, you're in the middle of a war. Right. Well, and it's like, yeah. So when you say that, I mean, that's that's like 20%, 30, maybe. Because you got to understand, give or take, you, you also have to think about how the numbers of people coming in and coming out too. I mean, there, there was probably plenty of guys who got through some of the harder battles of 77, 70, 1777, 1776 and st- stuck on because of principle. But after like, say six months of IOUs from the government, they were like, this is not, I got to go. I got kids. I'm out. Thanks. And, to that end, George Washington was good about keeping tabs on the people that were like literally honorable and he could understand them wanting to go home. And to his credit, too, he wanted to go home, too. I mean, you got to remember, these are still human beings like me and you, you know, they're they have drive, but drive will only get you so far at the end of the day. Like if if you're circumstances are so hopeless i'm not saying to give up hope in any way always have hope no matter what there's always a way to have a fresh start and it but in this type of a winner you really learn who who the tried and true dudes in service are the ones who who are going to stick it out and i'm not saying anybody who went home was a bad person in any way I completely understand somebody saying, look, I have to go home. I have to take care of my family. I, but when it comes to the birth of this country and what it all ends up being, I mean, 230 some years later, 20 years, something later, 40, uh, we're sitting here talking about it for a reason, you know? And, there's tons of documentaries on the revolutionary revolutionary war and as i said in the beginning of part one there's a reason these guys are mythologized so much because their stories are so fantastic in in you're searching i think when you become a big fan of history for that that essence of humanity in the characters that you're researching or learning about it sounds tedious when you say it that way, but it's not. Like it really does enlighten you in your personal life to think of these people as real people. And I think inevitably what happened in this winter is 
why Washington to me is so important and his charisma as a leader is part of what America is and hopefully can one day live up to fully. I think we've had amazing moments in time. I think personally right now, things are way too political and I said it before and I'll say it again. One of my favorite quotes of all time came from a young senator named Abraham Lincoln who said, uh, house divided will not stand. And there's just got to be some fucking unity, guys. There really has to be. You can't fucking do it. Our, our differences are so fucking small in this country. We just got to listen to each other, whether it be at the bank, at your job, at the fucking dentist office, or your kids. Just listen. And that's been Red yeah. Dead quote of the night. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, that's a that's a rabbit hole of a conversation we could go down. True. I, it's, uh, it's loaded. Yeah. Modern day politics. Yeah. It's uh, there's a lack of empathy that True. is abundant uh, in our politics today and a lack of understanding and a hell of a lot of ignorance. And it's just, you know, you always hear, I mean, we're 40 now we're in our forties. Mm-hmm. We've heard, you know, probably many times throughout our, you know, our lives that, uh, you know, we've never been more divided than we are now. I, I truly believe that right now. I really do. I think it's bad right now. Um, I think, unfortunately, there's too much out there that lends itself to each and everybody's perspective so definitively. And, you know, for your average, say, low intellect, it can seem so easy to glom on to you know, these figureheads that pop up and I don't want to give any of them credit, but people, you know, you know, who I'm, who I'm probably hinting at here when it comes to politics, but it seems too easy to, to glom onto some, I've always found it. Take a note from George Washington, listen to your closest confidants, listen to people who, you know, are educated that, that have a good grasp on things. Don't listen to what you see on social media or whatever. Don't let it, don't let it, don't let it divide you from yourself. Cause principles are one thing, but ideas, you're not, you're not those things. So give yourself some, some good, good time to really suss out what you believe and let that be something that you take. But Valley Forge was a big success. When spring comes, the boys are fucking hot and ready. They're like, damn, we know how to use bayonets. We're ready to go. Nathaniel Green, as I mentioned, he does the IOUs, takes the piggies, probably some, maybe some beers in there from old Sam Adams. Washington said to Nathaniel Green, which he didn't appreciate, you're a solid dude and I want you in charge of supplies because you know how to get them. Knowing how important it is, he sets Green out to rebuild supply lines for the Continental Army. This becomes very good for George Washington, and he believes finally it's time to put on, it's time for him to put up or shut up with the Brits after von Steuben's winter training. And so, do you want to take a quick break and then we can come back? I got to pee like a racehorse. 
Yeah, we can do that. I, All right. I'll join you. All right, then. We're going to... We're going to take a quick break, folks. Thank you for listening to my spiels. I'm sorry if they've been going all along, but we are cruising through this material, and hopefully we can get to the end of the war this time. If not, there will be a part three. We'll see you after the break. I will say, uh, yeah. I watched the Patriot. I, I watched the Patriot. The other oh day. yeah, I did. I did get to watch it. Uh, Danielle, she was like, "Are we gonna watch this or what?" I was like, "Yeah, screw it. I might as well see." <clears throat> I haven't watched it in so long, but um, as I was, you know, after I watched it and started doing, you know, prep work for the episode tonight, it, you know, obviously names changed, but some of the accuracies were there, like the whole, um, you know, training, you know, the foreign guy comes over, you know, what's his name? I can't remember his name. He played in bad boys, but he's the, uh, French Lieutenant Colonel or whatever. Um, so yeah, they, they train him and then they, <clears throat> it's South Carolina. So they do the, I, I think it's cow pens that they, they did at the end. And like the, the Cornwallis deputy there, Tavington, he's like the Dragoon guy. I think he's supposed to be uh, Bannister Tarleton. Yeah, in real life. Yeah, 
so yeah, there are some similarities there. But yeah, it was it was good. It wasn't that bad. <clears throat> Did you know that the sequence that Mel Gibson interacts with him after he frees the prisoners from the fort, the colonial guys or whatever, when he says all that stuff about killing his family and shit, he was supposed to be silent and walk away, and he ad-libbed the line, before this war's over, I'm gonna kill you. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, couldn't He couldn't hold back that Australian rage. Mad Max, man. Pissed off. I get it. That's a future episode. <laughs> All right, so as Adam mentioned, we are knee-deep in April 1778. On a chilly spring morning, a ranger ship off the coast of England takes its sails. It's been 700 years since anyone has rained fire on them. But Scottish-born John Paul Jones at 31 wearing a British uniform, because the American uniform wasn't flattering. That's his words, not mine. He wants to make a statement, and he says, I'm going to overcome my modest origins to become a gentleman. He had early on in his life killed a mutinous crew member and hided, and hided hid in Virginia, join, joining the Continental Navy in 1775, right off this inception. What the Navy was basically back then was a mismatched set of merchant ships with little known of warfare. But Jones had a background of sailing as a young man around England and Scotland, so he went guerrilla style. He went back to the waters of his youth and made it out to stomp out fuckers by pretending to be an ally with his British coat and ensign, and then saddling up close and raiding their ships. Their supplies in England says, what the actual fuck is this tomfoolery? And it was badass, and in line with the name John Paul Jones. He becomes known as the Pirate Jones, but he didn't like that again. He wanted to be a gentleman. He set his eye on a British warship, and he found one, a ship called the Drake. He flew the British naval ensign and came up on it, and they shot at each other broadside. And England had this idea of a sea waltz. Again, this gentlemanly thing whenever, Sir, when we do battle at sea, we waltz. And Jones is like, fuck that, I'm rock and roll, buddy. We got dudes in the mast and camo shooting at them with hot grape shot. It sounds delicious, but is probably very painful. And cannon fire. In one hour, he took the Drake. It had never happened before, and the British Navy saw itself as God-tier at this time. British sea power is a thing, folks. Google. Google it. The Ranger heads to France, and Jones is a happy gentleman now. One day he will become known as the father of the American Navy. I dig his style. You said there was nothing that happened in 1778. There you go, buddy. May Sorry. No, you're... A <laughs> couple, couple things happened in 1778. <laughs> Sorry, I think I said uh, one of the previous times I was on, I, didn't, I, I, don't, I don't know shit about John Paul Jones. I still don't. I should probably know more. Father of the American uh, Navy. I didn't know he was uh, ever considered a pirate, though. That's new to me. Well, that was just the Brits. They're like, he dons our coat and he thinks he's uh, we're British over here. We eat crumpets. Whatever. Yeah, it's funny. I uh, speaking of taking over a ship. I real quick tangent. I uh, 
I watched a video on that stupid ass turtle submarine. I don't know if we brought that up in the first episode, so I think I think you did. I can't remember, but I think you did. And yeah. I, I watched like a five ten minute YouTube video on it. It, it was made of oak, yeah, and it was um, covered in pine tar. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a bicycle pedal inside of it to propel you through the fucking ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine how stupid that looked? It was a one-man deal. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's just this one guy in this giant ball, wooden ball, and he had a bike pedal, and there was like this big balloon of gunpowder. Yeah. And <clears throat> the the goal was to like pedal the submarine up underneath a British ship in the harbor and release the 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 thing of gunpowder and blow it up. Well. They had one mission, and it was a complete failure. The bubble of gunpowder exploded at sea. <laughs> it's just like a complete failure. It's so funny to me. I mean, at the time, though, that was probably like some crazy technology. They, you know, I mean, I've actually it... seen the the uh, the um, the submarine in Charleston. I think I mentioned that before. There's a uh, the submarine. Uh, that was used in the Civil War. It's a it's a oh. museum in Charleston. Oh, that's fascinating. That would be uh, interesting to see. I mean, it came a long way from that fucking tomfoolery. The 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 turtle, the the floating ball of oak and tar. Anyway, <laughs> I think that's funny as shit. There's a there's a show on uh, I don't know history or whatever, but it has like wacky World War Two inventions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And there was all sorts of crazy shit, like Ferris wheels with like Tommy guns on them, just like spraying bullets, just <laughs> mass. If you can think of anything that you tried to do with your GI Joes as a kid, it was probably also tried out during World War II. We were just fucking invention crazy. But getting back to 1778, it May 5th to be exact, Nathaniel Green Van von Steuben and George Washington have had months of training and are bolstered up by their supplies and forces have swelled up to 13,000 strong. By persevering through a hard winter, they are tough and they are ready to go. In Philadelphia, British commander Sir Sir Henry Clinton takes over for disgraced General Howe. He is the last big British force standing. Seniority was the way of rising up ranks in the English army. He was next in line and super focused on handling this the right way after both Howe and Burgoyne had fucked it up royally. On top of that, there are three adversaries to them to face now with France in the question. So, meanwhile, Ben Franklin is in France and making moves, holding it down for America. Granted, he plays it super close to the chest, and on top of France giving supplies and support, we are now getting naval support from them. At this point, British orders are to consolidate in New York, giving up Philadelphia completely. This pissed off Henry Clinton quite a bit, because they like having the two positions, and this is consolidation seems like a bad thing, especially when you think about how slow these forces are going to end up moving. And meanwhile, Washington is like, all right, let's go. Let's go. I got a murder boner right now. So on June 28th, 
can set it up to send 5,000 in, basically do their own move on them, send them in the rear of the British forces. He sends General Lee in order of English seniority, um, in order of, so he sends General Lee. The offensive is new and hard-hitting, hard-fighting, given their previous year, and it happens on one of the hottest days of the war in New Jersey. Around noon, Continental soldiers are in retreat, which seems completely unfathomable. So this first time that he sends troops into battle in the rear of the British forces, they literally get pounced. And it seems like, like, it seemed like a no-brainer. Like, he's like, I, we got this. We've got the training. Dudes are ready to go. They know how to use their bayonets. They know how to shoot. They know how to move in formation. This is going to be easy shit. And basically, general, the general he sent in with them is completely fucking re- impaired. And um, Washington is irate. Like, he he had to dress this dude down, and it seemed like this was going to be a quick turnaround. And in this heat, the Brits obviously aren't comfortable. They are wearing wool in the summertime. These dudes are ready to faint. Some did die during this just from heat exhaustion. In an hour, Washington's army gets to the high ground and waits George Washington rides in front of his men, risking his life after, like I said, he dressed down the guy that he sent in, General Lee. And Braveheart style, he just gets out in front of them, and and the British were like, well, we know about how they handle things, and they're not doing it like gentlemanly, so they start shooting at this dude, and all of them missed. Because he was Iron Man. And this leads into the Battle of Monmouth. 20,000 clash. For the men on the field, it's some of the most intense conflict anyone has seen. The British hit the colonial men with bayonets, some hid in the shade, firing wildly confused. With the, but with all said, there is a sense of duty finally for these soldiers after their training with von Steuben. A local woman named Mary Hayes risked her life to help men on the battlefield and has a nickname dubbed for her and women like her who helped their local men on the field, and the nickname is Molly Pitcher. So thank you, ladies. When it was all over, this battle at Monmouth was a draw. Washington knew that after Valley Forge, he had done a solid thing, and now... The people in Rebel Congress knew they had their real leader. Disgraced General Lee went home and died with his dogs in 1782. Which sucks. It sucks to be that guy. To have to to go home from war and be a complete, like, complete total piece of shit. Um, So, we're going to fast forward to Charleston. April, May, 1780. Um, So basically, what I wanted to kind of discuss here is that after this era, like Washington got his groove back. And 
he he had somewhere he had somewhere to stand on how things were going to go. Uh, you would think that there was. Um, you would think that after this, a war being a draw wouldn't be such a great thing, but I think one of the one of the big kind of turning points was not just what he did and what Howe did, or not Howe, Horatio Gates, I'm sorry. Um, there's there's got to be a sense of confidence brewing now, especially for, for Washington, because these things had been so many shutouts and retreats and shows of force. So to have a have a uh, what did I call it? Uh, when a when when a battle is like a stalemate or a, a like both it's it's a, essentially it's a tie is kind of new, and I mean it's great for building morale for them because they are finally starting to see the tides turn. And granted, you don't want to see any men die. And when your forces are stinking hot, I'm sure it was that was an easy battle to call and for everybody to get under some fucking shade and drink some whiskey. Um, the Americans, unfortunately, though, after Washington's army attacked them near Monmouth, New Jersey, the battle effectively ended in this draw as the Americans held their ground, but Clinton was able to get his army and supplies safely to New York. So what was set out and what was ordered by the higher-ups in, in England was being done. And on July, uh, July, July 8th, a French fleet commanded by the Comte d'Estaing arrived off the Atlantic coast ready to do battle with the British. A joint attack on the British at Newport, Rhode Island in late July failed, and for the most part, the war settled into a stalemate phase in the north. The Americans suffered a number of setbacks from 1779 to 1781, including the defection of General Benedict Arnold to the British. So not only did he fully commit to this letter-writing campaign to Peggy, which got to the British forces basically in their code. I mean, he was trying to show up the former suitor a bit and be all like, Peggy, your tits are like perfect and your kisses are like milk cookies in the night. But also this is where we're going to be moving, so... Milk cookies? Uh, I don't know. Milk cookies in the night. I mean, look, when you're eating your shoes for dinner, I, th- I feel like milk Milk is- cookies sound great. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, drink the milk out of your dirty boot. Yeah, like one of those big boot shoe things. <laughs> das boot. Das boot. Pass the das boot and the milk cookies. So... Benedict Arnold deflects. Basically, after, I think, two times getting done dirty by his military service and not seeing himself get promoted to the positions that he saw, like other people getting promoted to, he said, fuck, fuck this, I'm joining the Brits. 
And yeah, uh, well, you know, Washington offered him a, a command towards the end. Oh, right he before. did. Yeah, and it, but that right was he he'd already gone too far at that point. Yeah, like he was already yeah. too far dug in. Yeah, and I did not know this, but West Point was Fort Arnold. I did not know that it was. So he got um, he got the command of then Fort Arnold, which is now West Point. Yep. But uh, yeah, I, I had no idea. And then you know, obviously, the uh, John Andre debacle. Right. Yeah, he was just already. He already made up his mind. Yeah. He'd gone too far, and that pussy was just too good. So. Peggy fucking shipping. Bitch. In the South, the British occupied Georgia by early 1779 and captured Charleston, South Carolina in May 1780. British forces under Lord Charles Cornwallis then began an offensive in the region, crushing Horatio Gates' American troops at Camden in mid-August. Though the Americans scored a victory over Loyal's forces at King's Mountain in early October, Nathaniel Green replaced Gates as the American com- commander in the South that December. Under Green's command, General Daniel Morgan scored a victory against a British force led by Colonel Banastray Tarleton at Cowpens, South Carolina, on January 17, 1781. Do you have anything to add to that? You, you, I, yeah. you mentioned cow pens. I'm, I'm kind of blazing through these latter halves because I think the turning point was Saratoga, but I don't want to... Well, what happened with, with it dying down in the north, the, the whole uh, refocus to the southern strategy is what it was called. Um, everybody over in Great Britain was just like impatient. We're, mm-hmm. you know, four years, five years into the war now. We haven't <clears throat> They haven't done anything like to keep the morale high back across the pond. So, so yeah, they 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 shifted focus to uh, they first took Savannah and then then Charleston. But uh, yeah, there was a ton of battles throughout South Carolina and North Carolina, and uh, you're talking about yeah, Kings Mountain and Cowpens and and Camden. Um, some of the tactics that were used by like splitting their armies, um, something that the, the British weren't used to, um, you know, having to divide, you know, the, their entire armies to like chase these two guys, Nathaniel Green and, and Daniel Morgan all over, you know, North Horatio Gates already tucked his tail between his legs and fucking took a horse 300 miles north or some shit he was already gone right because right. during one of those battles like you're, you're discussing there he literally like in the middle of it gets on his horse and just rides and he's got like you ever get so stoned that you're just like you're, you're you you have to shut out all the voices and focus on one thing to <laughs> to ride it out he had that kind of like tunnel vision of I got to get to safety and like almost kills his horse in riding its ass off into safety. And yeah. I mean, really the, you have the turncoat Benedict and you have the coward Horatio uh, Gates, Horatio Gates. Those are kind of the two, like you don't want to be those characters in the, in the, the reenactment. Yeah, but no. um, you mentioned, that the 
the British specifically really got reinforced. They had 9,000 troops that represented about a third of the total number of British troops in the country that showed up as reinforcements in 1780 at Charleston. So this, those moments when those ships arrived were big fucking deals. You know, we see an Amazon truck coming, we get excited because we're going to get our new soccer ball or fucking Xbox. But, I mean, this meant, like, this This meant big shit, you know, and, and that kind of a reinforcement. I mean, crossing the Atlantic was no fucking easy ride either. I mean... No, hell no. That, that's a... If you're... If you have... there, There's no time to take your diazepam or whatever fucking the nausea medicine is for when you're on the sea so you're you're if you're not a seafaring folk you're going to be busting your tummy and fucking puking up your boot shoes um and you and you gotta as a resident of charleston so just a little factoid charleston was the the fourth largest city at the time in the in colonial america it had about twelve thousand people which <clears throat> Sounds crazy to me. Well, Twelve thousand people being the the fourth largest city, but um, but kind of like you were talking about earlier about like Philadelphia high society, like everybody in Charleston was the same. Like they were so disconnected from the war because it was so far north, and they really. I mean, obviously there was discussion of it. Obviously they had they had assembly or Congress, you know, but. They just went about their lives, and then you know when the British shifted to the southern strategy, and now you got all these giant warships coming up on Charleston. You know. Well, I mentioned it. I mentioned. Um, I mentioned earlier the the British sea power. Yeah. If you want to compare the Revolutionary War to say something like Star Wars, where I mentioned like oh the re- rebels, the rebellion being the colonial uh, army and the rebel congress and all that British sea power was just like the empire showing up in Star Wars like those ships were huge and when when you were just a uh, I don't know a mailman paper boy whatever just standing at the port looking out I mean it was like it was doom and gloom it was scary shit you know especially for a colonial support uh, you know somebody who's supporting the American dream, especially, or somebody who just read common sense and then walked out of his little thatched hut and looked out to the port and was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's super intimidating. Then you get, you know, thousands of red coats coming off these ships and yeah, it's, it's incredibly intimidating. I couldn't, could imagine. And I can't imagine what it's like at the pub at night when you got one girl in the community and there's 10 fucking Brits you're like Jesus. I've been trying to get this girl to talk to me, and this fucking Timothy Chalamet rolls off the boat in a fucking red coat, scoops her up with his charm and his fish and chips breath. We love the you, British England. You're great. Everything's great now, but at that time, you only get half off your burgers. I don't know. <laughs> There was there was there was some there was some animosity, obviously. But now we're going to get into this final act. Uh, I do want to mention a few things, though, in the 1780s. So you had the 
Washaw's massacre, where British General Tarleton reserved no mercy for surrendering, surrendering American colonial forces. Especially when they got that recoup of forces, they were like, fuck your shit. We are slamming it in, no lubrication. You guys are getting fucked. Um, the massacre. Yeah, they, so they, yeah, they, they killed a bunch of people, um, a bunch of. Uh, Continental that had surrendered. Uh, basically, yeah, it was a massacre. And so, uh, this is funny. At the end, uh, General Tarleton was one of the only, uh, I think, uh, British like high up officers that wasn't invited to like the Yorktown surrender. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's what I remember uh, hearing. But yeah, he was uh, he was a douche, and I think. Yeah, I think that guy in, in the Patriot Tavington is supposed to be Tarleton in real life. The main villain. Was, yeah, because he just like went around killing people and like laughed about it. Yeah, that guy was a villain. And if you watch the Patriot, the actor that plays him does a great job. I can't think of his name off the top of my head. But yeah, he's he's a dickhead. And the massacre was around the same time, May 1780, that Henry Clinton revoked the parole of those who were allowed to leave Charleston. These two events served as a catalyst for many neutral colonists to side with the colonial army. Yeah, it's like you were saying earlier about the woman uh, being Indian propaganda. This was propaganda against uh, you know British forces because it's just... It was it was senseless, needless, and you know it riled a lot of people up. I think. And this is that same time uh, when in Camden, South Carolina, August 1780, complete disaster for the Continental Army as they got annihilated. Horatio Gates was placed in charge by the Continental Congress to lead the Southern Army against Cornwallis. Nearly a thousand Continentals were killed, compared to only 70 or so British. Gates retreated. He was a piece of shit. There was a there was a there was a victory here though at Kings Mountain on October seventeen eighty. But let's let's discuss cow pens again real quick. This was played out in the Patriot. Obviously, American General Daniel Morgan took his force of militia up against the asshole behind the Warshaws massacre, Lieutenant Colonel Bannister. Do you know this Bannister Tarleton? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it was Bannister Tarleton. I think I spelled his name wrong. No, you're fine. Don't worry about it. I think in the movie, Mel Gibson is Morgan. Uh, and the yeah, Tavington. Morgan. Yeah, and the Tavington character, character is Tarleton. So yeah. these two square off, and Cowpens is a victory. Yeah, there were some tactics there that he'd used uh, as far as moving his lines um, and just like deceiving uh, the the forces coming from you know the onslaught, the, the assault they were facing. I think um, uh, I think that's the battle. They call it like a double envelope. Does that sound familiar to you? A double envelope. Yeah. So they had like it, it's so the, in essence they had like, like two in. lines of. Yeah, they had like two lines of militia, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they would the first line would fire and then the second line opened up allowing the first line to go behind them mm-hmm. and then the second line fired. And then they all went behind the third line which was the regular continentals. 
right. and those two lines of militia they circled around um and came back and were able to like flank the british on either side as well as taking on the front you know so it was just like a complete just a, yeah it was just overwhelming which we needed all of our victories and this was a decisive one and 1781 is a big year for us because this is when the war really starts to draw to a close and by the fall of 1781 green's american forces had managed to force cornwallis and his men to withdraw to virginia's yorktown peninsula near where the york river empties into chesapeake bay supported by a french army commanded by general jean baptiste de rochambeau washington moved against yorktown with a total of around 14,000 soldiers while a fleet of 36 French warships offshore prevented British reinforcement or evacuation. Trapped and overpowered, Cornwallis was forced to surrender his entire army on October 19th. Claiming illness, though, the British general sent his deputy Charles O'Hara to surrender. After O'Hara approached Rochambeau to surrender his sword, the Frenchman deferred to Washington. Washington gave the nod to his own deputy, Benjamin Lincoln, who accepted it. Though the movement for American independence effectively triumphed at the Battle of Yorktown, contemporary observers did not see that as the decisive victory yet. British forces remained stationed around Charleston, and the powerful main army still resided in New York. Though neither side would take decisive action over the better part of the next two years, the British removal of their troops from Charleston and Savannah in late 1782 finally pointed to the end of the conflict. British and American negotiators in Paris signed preliminary peace terms in Paris late that November, and on September 3rd, 1783, Great Britain formally recognized the independence of the U.S. in the Treaty of Paris. At the same time, Britain signed separate peace treaties with France and Spain, which had entered the conflict in 1779, bringing the American Revolution to a close after eight long, long years. Holy shit. There's a lot in there. I mean, there's Yorktown. October yeah, 1781. Let's, let's hit Yorktown if you want. We can talk about that for a minute. Cornwallis had spent months chasing Nathaniel Green all over the backwoods of North Carolina. You can't keep these militia guys out of the goddamn woods. He zigzagged back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he just kept getting, yeah. I mean, Cornwallis just kept chasing, right? So, like, and they were, they had all their shit, right? They had all their wagons and all their stuff. And I, they had all their treasure chests and, and uh, you know, Nathaniel Green, they were, you know. <laughs> Sorry, dog went crazy for a second there. Sorry. No worries. Um, but yeah, they were they were moving quick, and they couldn't catch up with them. So, um, I think I read that Cornwallis started a big fire. Yeah, I could be getting my guys mixed up, but I think it was Cornwallis. He started a big fire, and like they just started burning all their shit so they could like move faster to keep up. They just threw all their stuff in the fire, much like wow. the Russians did to the French. By setting Moscow ablaze, they would set things on fire. It was kind of because a lot of your supplies, when you would take over an area, would be all about the land around you. You know, if you were going to have to make do when it came to what you had, that was the best way to get, you know, 
if you're going to eat bark for dinner, pull it off the tree in the woods next to you or whatever, whatever was going to happen. Uh, he, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but yeah, he, he got to Yorktown and he just basically, uh, he had nowhere to go. Yorktown's up against the, the waterway or the ocean, you know, Chesapeake. Mm -hmm. Um, he was waiting for, waiting for resupply coming and, that's where the French really stepped in and they cut off the British fleet, you know, basically cut off the supplies from, you know, the great Britain side, Washington had come down from what Morristown, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And so they all just had Yorktown surrounding Cornwalls. Henry Clinton's still up in New York. He Mm -hmm. hasn't even left yet. He's been promising resupplies for months. Right. Right. Well, and and these guys, these guys always got in bed with some lady and, to be honest, they didn't want the war to end. Things were nice. Like you said, the socialite world, the parties, the yeah. hobnobbing. They weren't even paying attention. And, oh. and Cornwallis just kept writing them letters, writing them letters, writing them letters. And this guy was just like, yeah, we're coming. We'll be there. But, you know, you got to think. Like, they're in New York. They got to sail all the way down to Charleston. I don't know how long that takes. Quite a while, probably. I mean, it's not but. quick. It's not like a flight from Grand Rapids to Chicago that's in like thirty <laughs> minutes. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So Cornwallis, he just he was in Yorktown with basically no help, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he just finally was like, "Fuck it, I can't." You can't do it. You can't do it. And if you're not, if your communications are down and you're just stuck, I, I get it. And the French surrounded them, and um, it, like in in the decisive battles that were to come, um, an Allied force really steps it up and helps. And the yeah. French were a lot better than the he- Hessian sellswords that the the Brits bought. You know, they they had forces, and Napoleon would show them what soon enough. So they're they're. Things really came down to Yorktown in October of 1781. And the British were overrun within days. Did you know that uh, Jackie Washington, George Washington's last son, Mm -hmm. he implored him to let him join the army and Washington allowed him to. And he actually died at Yorktown. Yep. George Washington's son. I did not know that. Uh, until I started doing some research, but uh, yeah, that's uh, he didn't die in battle. He died of some disease. Uh, going back to the beginning, of course, there was a lot. Yeah, of he got like syphilis, so. or it, it, I, I'm sorry, yeah. it wasn't like an STD. It was he got something literally like something they would have called like literally like I I think it was like um, one of those things where it was like. <laughs> barracks cough or something like something ridiculous and it sucked for him because like le- legitimately he just loses his one his only son like he, he's yeah. got nothing he goes when this is all said and done at the very end of it washington again yes he he will end up becoming president and all that but he was also the first president that was like, okay, somebody else can do this. Even though he was the first, he still like was like, I'm out. You guys can run the show. 
I need I I've done enough. And he did. It was time to go home. Go home to Martha and fucking plant some flowers and pick up some radishes or whatever. Like he he did his duty. And thank you thank you for your service, Mr. Washington. President, Mr. President. We'll talk about uh, as an appendix to this episode uh, now that we've rounded it all out. The Treaty of Paris of 1783 formally ended the American Revolutionary War. American statesmen Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay negotiated the peace treaty with representatives of King George III of Great Britain. In the Treaty of Paris, the British Crown formally recognized American independence and ceded most of its territory east of the Mississippi River to the U.S., doubling the size of the new nation and paving the way for westward expansion. So as we said, in the fall of 1781, American-British troops fought the last major battle of the American Revolutionary War in Yorktown, Virginia. A combined American and French force led by George Washington and French General Comte de Rochambeau completely surrounded and captured British General Charles Cornwallis and about 9,000 British troops during the Siege of Yorktown. When news of British defeat at Yorktown reached England, support for the war in America faded in both the British Parliament and the public. England agreed to begin peace negotiations with the Americans to end the Revolutionary War. After Yorktown, the Continental Congress appointed a small group of statesmen to travel to Europe and negotiate a peace treaty with the British. John Adams... Brent, Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, Thomas Jefferson, and Henry Lawrence. Jefferson, however, was not able to leave the U.S. for the negotiations, and Lawrence had been captured by a British warship and held captive in the Tower of London until the end of the war, so the principal American negotiators, negotiators were Franklin, Adams, and John Jay. Franklin, who served as America's first ambassador to France, had been in Paris since the start of the revolution and was instrumental in securing French assistance during the war. Peace negotiations between British and American diplomats began there in the spring of 1782 and continued into the fall. The British wanted to end the costly war, but peace negotiations stalled when England wouldn't recognize U.S. independence, a point on which the American delegation refused to budge. After the election of a new, more pro-American parliament, Great Britain soon gave in and accepted the terms of American independence. And here are the terms. In 1782, the newly elected British Prime Minister, Lord Shelbourne, saw American independence as an opportunity to build a lucrative trade alliance with the new nation without the administrative and military costs of running and defending the colonies. See, ultimately, if you want to really barter with somebody, give them the idea of some lucrative trade. As a result, the Treaty economics, of... Economics, man. It, it, you spelled it out in the last episode and said it's all about economics. It is. It's all about money. That's why the IRS is always out to get you. To pay your fucking taxes, I guess. As a result, the Treaty of Paris terms were very favorable to the U.S. and with Great Britain making major concessions. The treaty signed by Franklin Adams and John Jay at the Hotel de York in Paris was finalized on September 3rd, 1783 and ratified by the Continental Congress on January 14th, 1784. These are the key terms of this Treaty of Paris. One, Great Britain finally gave formal recognition of its former colonies as a new and independent nation, the United States of America. Two, 
defined the U.S. border with Great Britain granting the Northwest Territory to the U.S. Three, secured fishing rights to the Great Grand Banks and, off, and other waters off the British-Canadian coastline for American boats. Three, opened up the Mississippi River to navigation by citizens of both the U.S. and Great Britain. Four, resolved issues with American debts owed to British creditors. Five, provided for fair treatment of American citizens who had remained loyal to the Great to Great Britain during the war. The Northwest Territory, perhaps as important as U.S. independence, the Treaty of Paris also established generous boundaries for the new nation. As part of the agreement, the British ceded a vast area known as the Northwest Territory to the U.S. The Northwest Territory, which included the present-day states of Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and parts of Minnesota doubled the land area of the U.S. and helped set the stage for the westward expansion and was to come over the next century. So essentially, this brand new nation, Mm -hmm. the United States of America, became larger landmass-wise than Great Britain, than France, than Spain. Yes. Essentially overnight. Mm -hmm. That's, That's crazy. It's insane. And, and when you think of all the land that's past that, I mean, you're basically getting the East Coast and the Midwest, but what was set to come later? Louisiana Purchase. Yep. <laughs> that's why I love you, man. That's why you're my brother. 1803, man. That's my man, TJ. That's right. I mean, that essentially, again, doubled the country in size. But yeah, I mean... You have these ancient European powers, right, that have been around for hundreds of years and have been at wars, you know, obviously all three of those countries had uh, territories all over the world. Um, Mm -hmm. But for the U.S. to just be like, yeah, I mean, obviously there was a lot of blood, sweat and tears put into it, but to just have, you know, overnight, basically here's your country and it's just it's bigger than yours and bigger than yours. <laughs> it's just like a big, I don't know. You said earlier, I mean, the treaty of Paris was really lopsided in favor of the United States. And, uh, yeah, we got, we got a good deal out of that. So what do you think now that we've done our first big series, what do you think overall about the revolutionary war? Yeah. Like I said at the beginning, man, there was, there's just so much going on and there was so much to like read about you could or watch about you know lots of youtube videos but like you can go down and like just go down like one character and you can do a whole a whole episode you know like i know you wanted to hit on benedict arnold um you know you could do benjamin franklin you could do whole episodes on like these just you know one person one battle you know, one event, you know, there's a lot to squeeze in. Yeah. Eight years of war, you know, all the lead up to it prior to, you know, 1775 before Lexington and Concord. Um, yeah, there's just so much, there's so much and it's hard to, hard to retain it all. It's crazy. It's hard to retain it all, but I do think Benedict Arnold is a through line in the war that is interesting. He's like a Game of Thrones character. Like, they all are. Like I said, Benjamin Franklin is kind of like the Varys, 
and uh, Benedict Arnold almost being like a, um, uh, I guess like a, a Lannister, if you will, like yeah. a Jamie Lannister or something like that. Um, Who's a little douchebag there? I yeah. The uh, the blonde kid. God, oh, Tyrion. God, yeah, I hated that kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh no no no! You're thinking Joffrey. Joffrey, that's the same. Yeah, God, that, that character. Fucking pisses so me annoying. Off. That guy pisses me off. Hey, it was nice to see the uh, what do they call it? The purple wedding. But no spoilers on a song of ice and fire. George R. R. Martin's insane epic that I wish would end. It's because of him that I became such a history nut in some ways too, because those stories are are vastly inspired by history, and we hope you enjoyed your your Revolutionary War history lesson. Hopefully, you learned something new. And if you're a historian out there listening to this, my hat goes off to you. If we didn't do enough justice to certain battles, I apologize. This isn't just a Revolutionary War podcast. We cover things like. Like we covered for a break, Pokemon, which itself is its own insane long thing, could be its own podcast because it's such a dense and massive fandom. But what would you, uh, and because this is a podcast, we can theorize this. What what is something that you from this that you would like to cover in the future, my brother? Oh man, I mean. You could do another two-part series on just everything that followed, um, you know, up to the Constitution and after. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You could do 1787 through, I don't know, I guess through Jefferson's uh, second term. And he got, a, he was, uh, what, 1803 to 1809, I think. I mean, you could. He's two terms. I know that. Yeah. Yeah, Washington was two terms, then Adams was the one, and then Jefferson first. Two. Adams is the first nerd one-term president. He's like a George H.W. Yeah. He was not popular. <laughs> Adams was not popular at all. It, he did a I lot ne- of good. I have never watched that Adams uh, documentary on HBO with uh, Paul Giamatti. Let's let you know what I say. We fucking if if if. If, if there's anything that me and you would have a blast covering and watching, getting to watch an HBO series, we should cover John Adams. Good. Because we'd learn a lot, and everything I've heard about him behind the scenes is fascinating. Like, his, his, his life, I mean, he was there during the Boston Massacre. Obviously, he represented the, the British in their trial after that. I, was it, it? It was. It. I always get this fucked up. I. I can never remember. Is it Adams and Jefferson who had the rivalry? Yes. Or was it Madison and Jefferson? No, it's Adams and it Jefferson. Was, and they both died on July fourth, eighteen twenty-six. I want to say. We're not going to look it up. We're just gonna. We're just gonna assume. I'm going to make think, our, uh, our historian friends out there listening's butt tight. I, th- I I think I'm right. I think it was July 4th, 1826. They both died. And this is just going off of just random history shit that I know. But And uh, I think Jefferson died after Adams. And he uh, wrote um, he wrote something on his deathbed to the effect of, like, I outlived John Adams. I can, like, die happy now. 
something like that. <laughs> and, and then you know he died what? like fucking six hours later or something. When 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 one of us dies, we the other one has to write that about the other now. Uh, anyway. And if there are any historians listening to this, and I got my dates or names all fucked up, don't don't like come at me because I I'm not a historian by profession. Hey, we just love to talk about it. And then if <laughs> if anything, we wrote this out ourselves. Everything we were reading, except for some of the bleeps, the the Treaty of Paris, I did read from a history website that I pulled up real quick because I did not want to get those dates wrong, and I wanted to really spell it out. So thank you to History dot com for the supplemental material, and thank you to the internet as a whole. It's a vast world out there, guys. Go to your local libraries and check out a couple of books. Read something, learn something. Life isn't for just sitting around playing Diablo 4, even though I'd like to make it that way some days. But we do have much for you to chew on when it comes to stories out there. We've got a bunch of episodes up right now. Napoleon's a good one to go back to that would I would recommend to listen to after this episode series that we just did. But we've got plenty to come. We've got more with Adam coming down the line. we got to come up with a nickname for you, but I think Adam's fine for now. Uh Maybe I'll try to come up with some colonial nickname. There we go. Adamos. <laughs> Adamos. That sounds kind of Latin, right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I I mean, you did kind of allude to it on the Navy Memories episode with your uh, Highway to the Danger Zone with your CPAP, which I love. <laughs> oh yeah, we I call you DZ Danger Danger DZ. Zone. Danger the, zone. We got the danger zone on tonight, ladies. Oh, you you got rad dad going on. That's that's way cool. So I gotta, I gotta we gotta come up with something that's like rad dadish. DZ danger zone. Danger zone. Know. Danger zone. Uh, you're, you you danger zone. Adam. He's got the navy shirt on. If you're watching this on YouTube, you know he's got to represent danger zone. I was uh, navy I pilot went to the store the other day. My my navy shirt on. Uh, <clears throat> it was either the day before. Or after Fourth of July, and uh, this old lady walked by me and gave me a fist pump, and she was like, "Go Navy!" <laughs> she was like eighty years old. I it's was good. Like, yep. It's good to know the colonists are still representing for the Continental Navy. She's a patriot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, that's been your episode, folks. Check out Zanzizi Podcast on Instagram. Email us uh, episode suggestions at Podcast at gmail.com. Also, please join the Discord. Link in the descriptions. We've been doing some uh, games. Uh, we just did one on my Twitch, twitch.tv slash Oceanic 101. That's where we host uh, What the Dub, uh, Jackbox type style interactive stuff you can join if you want we usually go for about an hour if we do it usually on uh at, at uh eastern standard time somewhere around 8 30 to 9 ish and uh yeah we got plenty of stuff for you to chew on plenty of stuff to do i still have to do the shout outs episode we're up to about four or five reviews on itunes if we get any more i'll add it to the dossier and we will shout you out that has been your episode thank you for joining me dz danger zone you got you. it, man. Anytime. I look forward to uh, next episode. All right. And, uh, yeah, if you want to do John Adams, that'll give me an excuse to watch that 
that series because I've always wanted to watch it. And I think Joseph, it was Joseph Ellis that did it, right? Yes. That wrote the, yeah. I don't Shout know, but Joseph Ellis. I don't know for sure, but I'm just going to say yes. <laughs> All right. That's been your episode. We love you. Have a great one.